My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. May the Lord be in my heart and on my lips, that I may worthily and fitly proclaim the Holy Gospel in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last Sunday, we commemorated St. Luke, the doctor, evangelist, friend, and co-worker of St. Paul. And today, as it was his feast day, well, it began uh, yesterday, is, uh, we commemorate St. James of Jerusalem, also known as St. James the Just, as well as he's also known as the kinsman or the brother of the Lord. And this is a different St. James mentioned uh, than the Apostle James, who was the brother of John. And the other James, the brother of John, was the first apostle to be martyred. And as the early church began to spread, St. James, the kinsman of the Lord, stayed in and lived in and ministered in Jerusalem and was the bishop of the church there. His trajectory is an interesting one because initially he was an unbeliever in Jesus. And he went from being an unbeliever in Jesus with a familial connection to Jesus to becoming the bishop of the church in Jerusalem and then winding up as a martyr for the Lord he once did not believe in. And I believe his life shows us a way that we too can move from unbelief to belief, from doubt to faith, from faith and belief to action in service to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at the three readings we just heard read from Psalm 1, Acts 15, and Matthew chapter 13. And we don't know a lot of St. James's early life from the scriptures, but the early church historian Eusebius says that he was a very pious man who prayed often. And some people think that he was the biological uh, brother of Jesus from Mary, Mary and Joseph, but most believe that he was a half-brother, that he was the son of Joseph from a previous marriage or a very close cousin, not the son of Mary, but the son of another woman and Joseph. And if his piety was something that was part of his life from a young age, this desire to worship God, then we can see how this would lead into his life as a follower of Jesus once he came to believe. Psalm 1 that we just heard is about the righteous man. And indulge me, I'm going to read it again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers the wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment seat nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the Lord knows the ways of the righteous but the ways of the wicked will perish so Psalm 1 is about the righteous man and it lists what the righteous man does The righteous man delights in the law of God. As the psalmist also notes elsewhere, 19 verse 7, your law is perfect, reviving the soul. The law is not something that the righteous man merely parrots with his mouth. It is something that he delights in. 
To delight in something is more than just a passing admiration for a person, place, or thing. We have this concept in our minds that to the ancient Hebrew people, that the law was a burden. That the law was something that they were, they were just aching to, to just jettison and just get rid of because it was something that was just so grinding upon them. And that, that, that belief is challenged heavily when we read verses like this, particularly from the Psalms, about what the law is and what it was supposed to do in preparing them for Jesus. But to delight in something is more than just a passing admiration, right? So saying, you know, <laughs> who can I pick on? Who wants to be picked on today? Someone who says, you know, I really like Nancy's gumption, right? It's not the same as delighting in the person being praised for possessing said gumption, right? Me pointing that out isn't delighting in that. Like me saying, you know, I really appreciate Joanne's forthrightness. That's not appreciating, that's not delighting in Joanne. That's just pointing something out about Joanne, Delighting in is, as the psalmist says here, is meditating, is meditating on the, on, on the law of God. Now, so we have to be careful that we don't import foreign ideas of meditation into what we're talking about here today. One, <laughs> one thing that I cannot stand, it makes me, it, it makes me, it, it brings me physical pain, like when I turn on TVN and I watch a healing evangelist on TV, same kind of reaction is when I'm watching a service or I'm in a service and somebody decides, you know what we should do to open the service or include in this act of Christian worship, let's include a guided meditation. Everybody close your eyes, follow the sound of my voice. Now you're getting heavier. Now imagine a feeling going all the way through your body. It's going down and down and then when it goes out, it's gonna be gone and then I'm gonna clap and you're gonna open your eyes. That is not Meditation. Well, it is, but it's not Christian meditation. And we have thousands of years of Christian meditation to draw from. We don't have to import uh, pop secular uh, uh, guided meditations or, or stuff from, from the East to meditate. In the scriptures, to, to meditate on something is to, 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 to confess it, to speak it, right? So, so in Joshua 1.8, what does Joshua say to the people? All you guys from Sunday school remember. Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not what? Depart from. Who said that? Gold star. This book of the. <laughs> I have a mental chart, right? This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. But you shall meditate on it day and night. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Right? So to delight in the law of God is not to just affirm it, but to speak it, to memorize it, to confess it over and over again. So that eventually what the law says becomes part of the person praying. Which then has, helps us to keep the law by doing what the law says. In other words, as we meditate on it, as we memorize it, as we speak it, it settles in us. And then that comes out as we then can pray it. Pray it. 
One of the questions I get asked as a pastor very often is how can I be a good prayer? I don't know if that's the right vocabulary. How can I pray better? And one of my standard answers is pray the Psalms. Read the scriptures. Internalize scripture. Because as you read scripture, as you internalize scripture, as you read the Psalms, as you memorize the Psalms, they begin to become your own prayers. And then you find that you don't have any more pressure to try and spontaneously make something up on the fly. And I think that when we resist the idea of praying the Psalms, of praying the prayers of the church in favor of just the spontaneous, that we do ourselves a disservice. We need to pray spontaneous prayers, right? We need to be able to just come to God and talk to him in prayer, right? We need that. It's necessary. But we also need guided prayer. We also need to learn how to pray. And we learn how to pray by praying what people who have gone before us have prayed. Should not depart out of our mouths. The righteous man does this. And and this results in the opposite of what is awaiting the scoffers and the scornful, those who profess wisdom, those who profess piety, but do not delight in the law of God. I think we can see that clearly shown in, in the scriptures by the Pharisees and scribes in response to Jesus. They will blow away like chaff on the wind. As Proverbs 14, 2 reminds us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Now, generally speaking, this psalm could be talking about any man or woman that delights in the law of the Lord and the benefits that that has for them. But this psalm, like all the others, makes the most sense when we interpret it through Jesus. And I think that St. James thought initially that he was this type of man, but in reality, he was on the side of the scoffers, not on the righteous. And in the second reading in Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 to 58, we see Jesus coming to his own town where he grew up. You know the old saying, you can never go home again. I don't know if that's true, but it seems to be true here in this case. And Jesus teaches in the synagogue and everyone's like, where did Jesus get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? His mother's Mary. His brothers is James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Are all these, aren't his sisters with us too? Where does this guy get all of this stuff? And it says in verse 57, they took offense at him. And Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And it says he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. And in the gospel reading, I believe we see James, because he's here, that is in hostility to his brother. And we see that, I think, in, in 58, Jesus not being able to do mighty works there because of people's unbelief. I think that includes James. Now think about that. He's garnered a reputation as someone from whom the demons themselves fear. And he heals with a word. There's no one like Jesus, not even John the baptizer. And the people of his hometown are offended at him. Offended at him. Like the crazy uncle at Thanksgiving who says inappropriate things and we always, should we invite him to Thanksgiving? I don't know. He's going to cause trouble. But the people of his hometown, they just can't deal with who he is. And who he, who, what they think he used to be, when it comes up against with who he actually is, it causes this disconnect. 
And the Greek word here for offended is escandalizanta, which is where we get the word scandalized from. And it means to cause a person to distrust one that they ought to obey. In other words, they use their knowledge of his extended family as something to reject what he did and what he said. This can't be right, what he's saying, what he's doing. This, this, this can't be of God because I knew him growing up. He played with my kids. I gave him a treat the one day. When he fell down at his knee, I put a bandage on it and I gave it a kiss and then I sent him away. I know him. I know his sister. I know his brothers. Who does, who does he think he is to do and say these things? And they reject him. And elsewhere in the Gospels, it says that members of his own family don't believe in him. As it says here about, about James. And, and I think that, I don't think it's a huge stretch to think that James himself let that same familiarity keep him from receiving what Jesus is bringing, right? This is my half-brother. Who does he think he is? I grew up with him. Where's all this coming from? This is garbage. And he and the whole village, they wind up placing themselves in the one place that you don't want to be like we just heard read from Psalm 1. They find themselves in the seat of the scoffers as there is a conflict over Jesus and his identity. A conflict. And St. James gets carried along, I think, with it. Now let's look at Acts 15, verses 12 to 22. We see something very different. Something happened to James after Jesus was crucified and then rose from the dead. And, and what happens here, we see in Acts chapter 15... There's a, a big issue here over G, uh, the work of Jesus and Jesus' identity. St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 to 8, Then he appeared to James, this is Jesus, then to the apostles, last of all to one born, untimely born, he appeared also to me. Right? So post-resurrection, Jesus is crucified, he rises from the dead before his ascension. Who does Jesus appear to? That wasn't a trick question. His half-brother, James. I'm going to just say half-brother because that's kind of church tradition, right? So I'm going to go with that. He appears to his half-brother, James, risen from death. Wounds in his hands, in the side, in his head. Imagine that conversation, right? James is like just sitting there, like eating dinner. And then Jesus comes behind him and just appears in the room like he does. This is sanctified imagination, okay? So just work with me. James is eating, eating some bread, I don't know. If they had hummus back then, who knows. Jesus comes to him. <coughs> he turns around. He sees Jesus standing behind him in his glory. Imagine that conversation, <laughs> right? So yeah, remember the whole believing in me thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's gonna change now, right? Yes. He sees Jesus and believes and it's interesting, right, because there are some people who did see the risen Christ and some doubted. The scriptures tell us. But James sees and believes. And I believe that his pious life, that the law of God that he meditated on day and night led him to receive 
the word of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Giving him then the ability and the wisdom to truly know the law that he so loved and internalized. So we see here in Acts chapter 15 a controversy. So what's happening is in the book of Acts, the apostles, uh, particularly it starts off with, with Peter, he goes to visit, an angel says, go to visit the Gentiles. And he's like, okay. And God gives him a vision. And so he goes, okay. And he's thinking about what the vision means. And then uh, uh, some people come and like, hey, come to this dude Cornelius' house. God said that you're going to come talk to him. So Peter's like, all right. So Peter goes, tells him about Jesus. As Peter is giving his sermon, right, right in the middle of his sermon, it must have been the best sermon of all time, where God got really impatient and bored with him. He's like, I'm just going to go now, right? The Holy Spirit falls, and all the people in Cornelius' house have the same experience as the apostles had in the upper room at the day of Pentecost. And Peter's like, well, the Holy Spirit's been given to the Gentiles, so let's baptize them. So they do. And then you have St. Paul's ministry among the Gentiles, yielding fruit Gentile converts. So then this major question comes, right? Because what's happening is they don't have church on a Sunday, and uh, the worship, because they're still considered part of the Jews, there's no separation between Judaism or Christianity. There's still one faith, right? Except they're believers in Jesus as the Messiah. And these aren't. So they're still worshiping in the synagogue together. And then they're still going to the temple to pray as well. We see that in the book of Acts. But what happens when you have people who are not part of the covenant, who have not been initiated into the law of God, who, who, who have not followed the Torah, do they need now to follow the Torah and go all the way to even becoming circumcised? Do they have to go that full into to Judaism before they can become Christians? And that's the, the big concern here in Acts chapter 15. St. Paul says no. St. Peter says no. But there's other people who are even going around teaching this, causing trouble in other places. And this should give you some context for some of St. Paul's epistle, epistles, particularly Galatians, that are saying you can't be a follower of Jesus until you're circumcised. And what happened was, back in those days, the synagogues had wealthy Gentile donors, right? And, and they were, were Gentiles who, wanted, who, who worshipped and believed in and prayed to the God, of, the God of the Jews, but wouldn't go all the way, which would be particularly painful if you were a man, right? And so what happens is, they then say, oh, I don't have to go through all this. Oh, and Jesus is the Messiah that you guys have been talking about this whole time. Great. And the Gentiles, there's no barriers for them to entrance into the church, right? And so this causes a conflict. So that's what they're talking about here in Acts 15. Do you have to become Jews to become part of the church? And they're going back and forth, and it's a major conversation, right? So just as there's dissension over Jesus and his identity, as we saw in the gospel reading from Matthew, and St. James seems to be kind of just going along with it, here there's conflict over who his redemptive work applies to more. Or maybe I should say the conflict is over how does one get in? Is it open to the Gentiles? And so, after all of the debate, after all of the debate, who stands up and says, this is what we're going to do? St. James. St. James. And he gets up, and then he says, Peter told us what, you know, what, he, what happened, 
And then he said, the word of the prophets agree. And then he quotes the law. After this, I will return and I will build the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Right? So what James says is like the scriptures have been pointing to this the whole time, right? So we're not going to give them any barriers to becoming members of the church, right? So the gospel has been, is meant for them too, not just us. It's meant for them too. Here it is in the law and the prophets. Therefore, he says, don't trouble them. But he doesn't just say, that's it, right? Everything's good. He says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those outside of, uh, those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them a few things, a few instructions, right? So you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to go through all of the, the Jewish rituals and all of this stuff of initiation. You've been baptized. You've been brought into Christ. Great. Here's four things that you need to do. Abstain from sexual immorality. Don't eat things, uh, food sacrificed to idols. Don't eat stuff with blood in it. And or sorry, and what's been strangled. Okay? Those are the things. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Don't commit sexual immorality. And don't eat things that have been strangled and that have blood in it. And what he's done is, and we miss this, right? What he's done is he's gone back to the law, to Leviticus chapter 15, and he's taken what the law talks about for Jews who wanted to live among God's people but weren't becoming Jews. The law has some stuff for them to follow, right? So what St. James does is he reaches back into there and he brings that into their present time and says, here's the things you need to do. And we're good. And so everyone's like, yeah, that sounds really good, right? So they send a letter which says it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And they send out the letter with what St. James said, and this becomes the practice for them moving forward. So we see a movement from being swept away, from being a scoffer, I guess we could say, being one of the scornful in the life of James, and we see him now as the righteous man, as the just man in imitation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So back to Psalm 1 for a minute. So when it says, blessed is the man, it's specifically talking about Jesus. Jesus is, quote unquote, the man. Christ our Lord, who we confess was made man for our salvation. In contrast to the first man, Adam, and his descendants, Jesus did not fall into sin. He resisted the temptations of the devil. He did not turn into a scoffer or a sinner when he confronted the Pharisees and ate with sinners. Therefore, he is like the tree planted by the rivers of water, which is the river of the Holy Spirit, whose fruit, as St. Augustine reminds us, the establishment of the church who proclaims his word that will never be in vain or return void. And we follow this pattern just as St. James did, as we are rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. May, like him, Scripture always be on our lips, right? May that memorization, that delighting in the Word of God, may that be something that we do. May our life of prayer and devotion to God be shaped by the Word of God, by the reading of Scripture, by the praying of Scripture. Scripture always on our lips affects how we live. I didn't say anything. I'm not going to say 
who, but a while back, I was at somebody's house, and it's interesting what you see when you go to people's houses. And I was at somebody's house, and I saw on the wall, I saw a frame. And I think it was a chalkboard, or a whiteboard. And written on there, I think it said like daily memory verse, or, or, or memory verse. And it had a, a verse from scripture written out. And I was like, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And there's other people who also do that in different ways. Some people do that. I know people who, who try and get their kids to enter like a very kind of very formal rule of prayer, right? But with a lot of scripture in there, we should be forming our kids as we form ourselves to read the scripture, for scripture to be on our lips because it affects how we live. It affects the decisions that we make. Because what we believe and what we confess is supposed to transform how we live our lives. And St. James actually winds up writing a whole epistle about this. Faith, he says, without works is dead. We also know that James modeled a life of prayer. The church historian Eusebius says that James knelt so much in prayer that he had knees like a camel. Have you ever seen a camel's knees? They're really knobby and they're really tough because camels get up and down and they hit their knees, right? He prayed so much and he prayed on his knees so often that it, effect, it affected his knees. And he was so pious and so full of prayer that it is said, and I don't know if it's true, but it is said that he was even allowed to go pray in the Holy of Holies by the priests. And it's, and it's said that he was respected by all of the different sects of Judaism due to his personal holiness, his sanctity. And he fearlessly witnessed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so we ask, what happened to St. James? A large group of Pharisees, scribes, and others, they start to become afraid because people are continuing to believe in Jesus and joining the church. And they come to James and they confront him and they say, hey, we're going to ask you if Jesus is, you know, the Messiah. We, we want you to say no. So they go to the top of the Temple Mount and they take James with them and they say, and, and they ask him, right, who's Jesus? Is he like, you know, is he, is he, is he God? What's going on here? And James says, why do you ask me concerning Jesus, the Son of Man? He himself sitteth in heaven at the right hand of the great power and is about to come upon the clouds of heaven. Very similar to what we see in the book of Acts when St. Stephen is stoned. Almost as if he knew it was coming. And in response, the religious leaders behind him, even though he was beloved by them and by the people, in their anger, they threw him off of the Temple Mount. He didn't die, though. It's said that when he hit the ground, what was he able to do? He said, get on his knobby camel knees. And what does he do? He prays. He prays. And as they pick up stones to stone him, what do you think he says? Forgive them. They don't know what they do. The very words of our Lord on his lips. As he winds up being martyred for the Lord that he once did not believe in. 
He prays for their forgiveness. And the stoning event is also attested to by the Jewish Jewish historian Josephus. And I've heard it reading about this. I don't know if this is true. It could be, it could not be. But some people, I think it's Josephus, who, who, who even linked the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans with the death of St. James. Almost as if his prayers kept the darkness at bay. That his piety, that his sanctity kept the powers of evil at bay, kept them restrained just a little longer. We don't, that's a weird idea for us, but we see ideas like that in Scripture, right? Like uh, uh, Elisha, when he's in the town and somebody sends an army to get him. His servant is freaking out. And Elisha's there in the city and he's not afraid at all, right? Not afraid at all. And he asks God to open the eyes of his servant so the servant can see what he sees. And all around him, he sees the heavenly host. And we see even God talking to Abraham where God says, listen, if there's like five righteous people in this city, please spare it for the sake of my my relative Lot. And God says, okay, but there's only one righteous person in the city. It's just Lot. So God says, yes, the five, but there's only one, right? And we see the destruction. And, And I think, brothers and sisters, that's something that speaks to us is we can imitate him as he imitated Christ. And that's the whole point when we confess Again, like I mentioned last week, talking about St. Luke, we confess the communion of the saints. That they're not just people who just are sort of did something really cool and as a result get to go hang out with Jesus while we wait around around here. They are examples for us. Their lives are examples for us. Which is why the church began to start commemorating their lives in the first place. Because they are and continue to be examples, patterns for us to follow. Because not only can they help us learn how to worship Jesus more, to serve him better, to give our lives for him, right? They can also show us how to die for him too. Which sometimes is just as important as learning how to live for him. And so may his example live on in our hearts and in our lives. And may our faith not be without works. So that it may be alive and not dead. And to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory, together with his Father, who is from everlasting, and is all holy, good, and life-creating spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you have a few minutes, I'd ask you to go to gofundme.com slash Zion's Stone Church Repair Fund. We have some significant repair work that we need to do on our bell tower, as well as some repair work due to a recent lightning strike. Anything you'd be able to help us out with, we would greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of me or you have any questions about what you've heard, feel free to reach out at our Facebook page, Zion Stone UCC, or you can check us out on our website, zionstoneucc.com. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.